The scripture reading uh, this morning is taken from the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And if you can turn to your pew Bibles, you can find the portion uh, on page 1121. That is chapter 10 of the letter to the Romans. And I will read beginning with verse 6. Romans 10, verse 6. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But, what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, what a full morning, hey? We are meeting together as two services from Knox, the 11 and the 5, and a morning like this, you think, wow, we got to do this more often, don't we? Get together like this. It's a good thing. Welcome to all guests, friends of those who are baptized. Maybe you're here for the first time. We're so glad that uh, you can worship with us as we celebrate the resurrection, where we together confess Christ is risen. Three words, which form probably the most remarkable, perhaps subversive, radical statement ever uttered on the face of this earth. Christ is risen. And yet, it's, it's a statement that a non-Christian can certainly understand, even if you don't believe it. And we understand there are people who come to Knox who are somewhere in that process, and we're so glad that you're part of this church here exploring. But even though you might not believe it, you can still understand the the fact of those words, that Jesus of Nazareth, the man who followers claimed 
healed the sick, stilled storms, raised people from the dead, who made the poor the center of his ministry. This Jesus, who history tells us, was crucified under the orders of Pontius Pilate, who died an agonizing death in Jerusalem. This Jesus, on the third day after he went through this public execution to die for you and I, whose body sat in a grave, decomposing, dying, dead, on Sunday morning, was raised bodily from the dead, leaving an empty tomb behind. Not just a nice metaphor about spring and new life and those sorts of things, but the reality of his body transformed, came alive through the power of God, leaving this empty tomb behind. Those are the facts of history. Those are the reports of eyewitnesses. If you haven't done that homework, I encourage you to check out those sources. But that's something you can understand. The big question, it's not whether you understand it. It's not the historicity of it. It's do you believe it? Do you believe this? And, and not belief in the sense of I assent to the facts. Yeah, I comprehend them. They're sort of part of my intellectual framework. But do you believe it in the sense of... Have the implications of it impacted your life? Um, Has the reality of resurrection shaped the way you live daily life? If you don't believe the resurrection, you, you can live the rest of your life in quite a normal way, right? You can understand it, but if you don't believe it, you can just continue on with life. Maybe you can even admire Jesus, the person of Jesus. You can appreciate his example. You can... Uh, maybe even practice some of his teachings. But at the same time, you're free then to set aside all the stuff that makes you uncomfortable or that you disagree with or that you dislike. You know, perhaps the forgiveness of your enemies or his sexual ethics or praying for your persecutors or living simply or helping the poor. You can just set them aside, right? Because if he's just a teacher, although a good one, you can still dismiss that. But if it's true, if that, those three words, Christ is risen, If you believe that, Jesus rose from the dead, well, that changes everything. And in that case, you can't just set aside all that Jesus taught, all that he lived, all that he calls you to. I mean, think about that for a moment, right? A person who rises from the grave, a person who who demonstrates his power over death, who has definitively proven his divine reality and authority, is, is someone who's got a claim on you. That demands a response, and not a response of, yeah, no, thank you, sir. That's, that's a yes, Lord response that's demanded. If Christ is risen, you can only come before him and say, yes, Lord. Those three words, Christ is risen, are at the same time easy to understand, and yet at the same time so radically demanding and so life-altering. They change how you look at the world. I mean, resurrection means that nothing is impossible with God. That life triumphs over death. That love bests hatred. That hope overthrows and pins despair to the floor. That suffering and death don't get the last word in this life. 
Before he died, you might remember the story from Jesus' life. Jesus is walking with his disciples. He's in Jerusalem. This is just the week before he dies. And he sees they're in front of the temple, this massive colossus of, of brick and stone, this beautiful house of God. And, and Jesus says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll build it, rebuild it. And the people around say, you're kidding, right? It took 46 years to build this, Jesus. Three days? How will you ever rebuild it? But of course, he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about himself. And he's essentially saying, listen, I am going to be killed because this is where things are headed with my life, with my message, with my ministry. Because when you confront corrupt power systems, you pay for it. And often you pay for it with your own blood. So Jesus is headed to his own execution. And if you and I witnessed that execution, if we saw that beautiful divine life snuffed out on the cross, how could you not be so overwhelmed with despair? It's like the lights of the universe just went out. And it makes you wonder, is this the world we live in? Is this how a number of people live? This is the story? Is this how the story ends? Do you believe that? That this world ultimately... This is a cold, hard, dark place. Does death get the last word? Truly, honestly, actually, is, is this world just a dark place? And, and the good that we see, that we stumble upon, is it just sort of a pinprick, a momentary interruption in an otherwise meaningless existence? Because if that's the case, then despair is... Not only the reasonable option, it's the right option. But Jesus says, destroy that temple. But I'm doing something about it. I will rebuild it. He says his death, it's not the end. He says death does not get the last word. Darkness is not the end. And he's talking about something new, something beautifully unexpected that is going to happen after his death. He is talking resurrection. Do you believe God has risen, Christ from the dead? Resurrection announces that God has not given up on this world. Resurrection announces that this world matters. This world that we call home, this world of, of beautiful earth and light, this world of sky and sea, of, of music and matter and molecules, this world is the one that God is redeeming and renewing and restoring. And all violence and all injustice, hatred, greed, abuse, they're not right and they have no place in this world that Jesus is bringing. They do not belong in this world. Jesus is bringing something new into existence. And so resurrection announces that this life and, and the next life, heaven and earth, are, are actually one. It may appear separate, but they are a one single entity that is created and graced and embraced and saved by God. Resurrection shows us that. Heaven and earth are made for one another. Jesus is the first example of that. There's a funny thing about all the resurrection stories that you might note. Whenever people who knew Jesus, who walked with him in his daily life and ministry, when they see the risen Jesus, there is this moment of Lack of recognition. They don't recognize Jesus right away because something is so very different. He's still physical. 
You know, he breaks bread, he walks with them, he eats fish, and yet there is this quality of Jesus by which he can disappear from sight and he can pass through walls. What's going on with that? It is the new thing that God is doing. This new heaven, this new earth, this existing life and the life to come have come together. The point of resurrection, the point of the transformed body of Jesus is, is that he is equally at home both in this physical plane of existence and in that heavenly plane of existence. And he can pass quite appropriately from one to another. And he is the first taste of that new heaven and that new earth. He is the first thing that God is doing now and is bringing about in this life, this first example of bringing heaven and earth together, the first taste of what we are in for, what this world is in for. You see the incredible wonder of that? Are you living the implications of that reality, of that remarkable statement, Christ is risen? Because it is time, friends, to wake up to that beautiful reality, to become alive to that bigger reality that has come in Jesus Christ. Resurrection announces that God has begun to change and to heal and to restore everything that death has touched. And so that means that what we do with our lives, you know what? It matters. The body you have, the skin you call home right now, it's a part of what God is doing. So every act of compassion matters. Every cup of cold water you offer, every prayer, every creative act you participate in, everything that celebrates the good and true matters. Every, every fair and honest interaction in business and commerce, every kind word, every, every simple act of friendship, of love towards one another, they all belong. They're all part of what God is doing, his salvation that we are participating in. And they will continue to go on in God's good world. It means that caring for the poor matters, that taking care of the environment, that working for justice, that rehabbing houses, all those physical, material things, alleviating diseases are all part of this beautiful new creation that God has started in resurrection. Nothing gets forgotten. Nothing gets wasted. Everything has this place in this beautiful resurrection reality. Do you believe that? Everyone believes something. Everyone believes in someone. Even if you're here um, as what you might call an atheist or an agnostic, you, you still put your faith in something. You still put your trust in something. Jesus invites you to trust resurrection, to trust that resurrection is indeed the story of the universe, to trust that this is the good ending to this world and to your life. Jesus invites us to trust that every glimmer of good, every hint of hope, every impulse that somehow lifts another person's life, that is a taste, that is a glimpse of how things are meant to be and how things will continue to be in God's kingdom. And so if you're here today and maybe you struggle to believe in the resurrection, you know, you should at least desperately want this to be true. Because if it is true, if Christ is risen, there is the infinite hope you have for this world, for your life. There, you've got the best reason to pour out your life for the sake of others, to make this world a better place, to fight for rights and injustice. And because Christ is risen, 
Here's this other beautiful reality. Because he's alive, there is this reality of Jesus' presence in this world, this mysterious, this sometimes unexpected presence who meets us in all of our moments, especially those, those hard, difficult moments, those times when it feels like we have no strength, when it feels like there's nothing left, when it feels like we just can't go on, when it feels like life is crumbling. And we hear the voice of Jesus who says, destroy that temple, okay, but I'll rebuild it. Your life might feel like it's being destroyed, but I can rebuild it because I'm the God of resurrection. And so do you believe this? This is the question of Easter. Will you live with the gorgeous implications of that reality? Jesus' friends, when they came to the tomb, you might remember some of the resurrection stories. They come to the tomb and they hear the news. He's not here. He's alive. And... They run. That's probably the symbol, the best symbol of Easter. You know, not lilies or little bunnies or chicks or whatever. It is two women or disciples, robes hiked up, running in terror from the grave because their whole world has been turned upside down. And yet, soon after that, it is this fearlessness. They recognize there, if, if death has been conquered, there's nothing to fear. And nothing can ever be the same again. We are living now in the time of God's rescue of this world. And the wonder of this is God invites us to participate in it all. And it means that this life, your life, has this endless, unexpected possibility to it. Christ is risen. He's redeeming all things, which includes you, your life. Jesus, the Lord, who knows every hair on your head, who, who knows every dark secret in your heart, who has endured the cross for your sake, the risen one, continues to call all of us inviting us to call on his name, to know his salvation. Do you believe this? Jesus said, I will die, but that'll not be the end. No, 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 no. Things will actually just have begun. This is good news for a scary world. A world where darkness can just feel oppressive and thick. Where so many people think that the dark is normal. That death is actually the only end to the story. Where despair then feels like the only logical conclusion. But the good news of Easter is something else. Christ has risen. This is the good news we need to hear ourselves. When it feels like our life comes to some dark place. When you find yourself thinking that this is the end. It's just lost, it's gone, it's broken, it just can't be put back together again. And in that moment, you just wait. Because in that moment, things have just begun again. New creation begins because Christ is risen. Do you believe this, friends? This is the good news. For some of us, we've intellectually understood it, we've given mental assent, but we haven't lived the implications of it. Our invitation is, let's live out the invitation. Let's practice resurrection on a daily basis. Give yourself freshly today to the one that you confess as Lord. And maybe for those of you who have never believed that Christ has risen for you, this can be your story. I invite you today to, to believe in this, to live new creation, to live this hope, this salvation. As the scripture says, Jesus is Lord of all and he richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is no less true back then as it is today. It is your invitation, friends. Christ is risen.
Let's pray. There was no death planning for him. There wasn't the money to afford a nice burial plot. I wonder if you've thought to yourself in your reflection on Jesus' story, how much greed actually plays into his final days. He was betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. Now, Judas could have been ambitious for all kinds of things. Judas could have been ambitious for political power. He could have been ambitious for a higher religious role in society. He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed Jesus for money. He betrayed his friend and his Lord because he was greedy. And so Jesus is not a stranger to the reality of greed. This seventh and last of the deadly sins is one of the sins that got to the heart of Judas, that caused him to lose that sense of transcendence, that that caused him to lose that sense of what actually was reality and not reality, to the point where his greed overtook him and he was tempted in it and he followed through it and he passed it on by giving Jesus away, by betraying, by leading the authorities to Jesus. Matthew 27 tells the story. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders and the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. And so they bound him and they led him away and they handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. So he has an aha moment. He has a, that come to Jesus moment. But the authorities say to him, what is that to us? That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. And then he went away and he hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and they said, it's against the law to put this into treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took 30 pieces of silver, the price on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Even in Jesus' betrayal, greed is redirected. Do you see that in the story? That the 30 pieces of silver that so obsessed Judas that when he came to his senses and he couldn't live with, that 30 pieces of silver was actually redirected towards the poor. That money in God's kingdom is redirected in its proper direction towards buying a burial plot for people who did not have the connection, who did not have the network, who did not have the money in order to provide that for themselves and for their own families. 
And so whenever the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Caesar, the kingdom and the greed of Ahab come up against Jesus, something is transformed. And in that story, there's hope for us because it reminds us that God doesn't seem to be satisfied to leave us with our seven deadly sins or our seven glittering vices, but that God is constantly, purposefully trying to renew us and giving himself to redirect our hearts in the direction of his heart. And he does that through Jesus. Jesus is the story that awakens us from our insanity on thinking that these several temptations are actually going to lead us to the joy and the peace and the security and the safety that we desire. Jesus is always the one who opposes us in our, in our choice towards the direction of evil, but also offers us a way through. Jesus isn't the angry prophet who is preaching condemnation on us. Jesus is the one who is gaining our attention and calling us to a softening of the heart so that we come to our senses. Ahab, as the story unfolds, is going to come to his senses a little bit. Judas comes to his senses. There is no salvation in money. How in the world are we going to embrace the teaching of Jesus when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust are going to destroy? How in the world do we have a chance of not doing that in this culture that seems obsessed with connecting our security with our money? And in a way that sort of normalizes greed, bring, makes us all just a little bit greedy because of our obsession with our own safety and with our own security and with our own futures. How in the world do we have a chance of hearing the words of Jesus to the rich young ruler, sell everything that you have and give to the poor and follow me? Where and how could that ever become even a glimmer of truth for us? In a culture where the kingdom of this world and its obsessiveness about money is grinding us and grinding us. You know, in many ways, the way that the culture wants us to think about greed, by, by distracting us, I think, in these movies about opulence and an outrageous kind of greed that most of us can't actually identify with because they're kind of beyond the pale. And so I, I see those cultural, um, those cultural stories of obsessiveness and the vulgarness of greed as distractions for us in asking the question about our own greediness. It's, it's easy to look at Bernie Madoff and just be completely shocked by the level of greed, the level of deceit, the level of living your life so that not even your family knows what you're doing. Not even your children know what you're doing. Instead, I think it's a more helpful way is to, is to sort of normalize greed in, in a kind of a, a more possible set of questions. 
as disciples of Jesus Christ, how do we give ourselves to continue to participate systematically in a culture of greed by the way that we participate in the habits of the heart of this culture in our planning, in our goal setting, in our saving, in our understanding of money and its reality? How does this connect with us? How does this speak to us? What, what are we doing with the fact that most of us live in the small percentage of people in the world who actually control the 90% of the world's resources? How do you think about that? How does that affect the way that you pray, the way that you plan, the way you participate with your money and in the world today? How does the temptation of greed affect the life and the ministry and the organization of the church? Is there any question to be asked there? Is there anything to reflect on there? How does our obsession with money prevent us from using material gifts as ways to really bless and care for other people? Where do you see the kingdom of Jesus breaking into the culture today? Are there any signs in the broader culture, in business, in fashion, in finance? Are there, are there any signs that you're seeing as you're, you're reading the newspaper, as you're following the news stories of the world? Are there any signs that, that there, there's a, a spirit of generosity, that there's breaking in, that there's a recognition that the power of greed actually is not what human beings were designed for. Another way to completely redirect it is to ask the question, what are you greedy for? What are you longing for? What are you desirous of? The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says a really interesting thing. He says, he talks about ambition. He says, make it your ambition to live a simple life and to work with your hands. How in the world are we supposed to read that prophetic text in our culture? Make it your ambition. He's using those words on purpose. Become ambitious for simplicity. How ambitious, how greedy, how desirous are you for the things of mercy? For the reality of quiet and a quiet heart? For the beauty of service? For the power of deep prayer? There is a kind of a, a greed for God's righteousness, a longing for God's truthfulness, a passion for God's kingdom that is real and that is true and that moves us towards the transcendence. But greed continues to have a power over us. Let's move beyond our money, to be quite honest. We, we become greedy for information. It's called the internet. It cultivates this desire for us, not for less, but for more, whether we need it or not, whether it helps shape our hearts or not. 
There's an intensification that takes place in our culture. It's an intensification around sexuality. It's an intensification around things of violence that human beings seem to only be more and more satisfied with a certain intensification, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's power, whether it's information. So the glittering vices, the seven diddly sins, they, they can become a menu of asking ourselves, how, what is the state of my soul? One day, somewhere late in my 30s, I realized that there was a trend in my heart that I would just simply describe as this. I realized I was starting to worry about money more than I've ever had in my entire life. I realized that, that things of finance were becoming more interesting to me, that I was asking myself all kinds of questions about how much is enough and whether we were on track for enough. And I, I remember it bothered me so much. I wasn't, I wasn't raised that way. And, and money had not been an interest to me for, through my teens, through my 20s, and through most of my 30s. It bothered me so much that I admitted it to Karen, my wife, and just said, and asked her to think about my life and our lives and, and just to ask this simple question, like, why do you think money is becoming more important? We talked through, you know, having, having kids and maybe it was because of the worry about university and, and all of those kinds of things. And, and pretty soon that, that, that a distraction turned into a, an interest in finance, an interest in financial markets and in stocks and all kinds of vehicles for investment. And, and I have to say that at some point in time, I just had to pull myself off that track. Just to remind you, I wasn't working as a banker, I was living as a pastor. And yet somewhere, at some point in time, most of us are touched by these temptations. I really believe that one of the blessings in my own life around this area has been the presence of people who have offered me an opportunity to see that God could redirect the habits of my heart. I'm, I'm so thankful for my, my maternal grandmother, to all of my grandparents, really. But I had, I had my rich grandparents and my poor grandparents, that's what we used to call them, because one of them owned a cottage and one of them didn't. But it's interesting that when my grandparents passed away, both the rich ones and the poor ones, they really did pass away leaving very little. The reality is that they gave most of it away to Christian endeavor and to good things. Their will was not filled with hundreds of thousands of dollars. That could have been a disappointment to my aunts and uncles and to us cousins, but, but really what it did is it spoke to who they were into the kingdom that they were living in. My, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, used to always be slipping us these silver quarters. I think I may have told something about this story before here in Knox Church. And my mom used to always say to her, Mom, don't give the kids money. 
Every time we visited, she was like sneaking them into our pockets and into, we'd find them in our boots and our socks and because she just didn't want my mom to know she was giving us these silver quarters. And we thought my grandmother was so rich. And when I was, went to university, I lived with her for three years. And one day when I was snooping in the um, china cabinet, which was upstairs in a spare room because her home was too small to have the china cabinet in the, in the dining room, I found this little sugar bowl, and it was filled with several dozen pieces of these this silver. But she redirected it in the direction of love. And when she died, she didn't have anything left except for a heart filled with love for God and for her family. A life spent in prayer for her grandchildren. And we're still seeing signs that those prayers are being answered even as we're getting into middle age, all of our grandchildren. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for my new friend in Cuba, Giovanni. You know the politics of Cuba. Cuba is a pretty poor kind of place. It's gonna get a lot of attention the next week and the next months ahead. But through, we think, the direction of the Holy Spirit, we've, we've met a young person in Cuba. And he hardly has two cents to rub together, but man, is he rich in family. Does he ever love his two little daughters and his wife? Is he ever rich in friendship? Is he ever rich? I, I don't know if I've ever met a person who knows how to celebrate, who is grateful. And because of recent changes in Cuba, we went to his mom's, um, his parents' home. And we went into this home and, and I learned that, that his, his mother is my age, his same age as I am, born in the same year, we're just a few weeks apart. Uh, in their little home and realizing that they raised children here, they lived here for the whole 35 years and I just began to do the math and compare with, with what we have and what we take for granted. And it's a beautiful thing that God gives us other people in our lives who are followers of Jesus, who, who have a way of living and spending and praying and living out their lives that remind us that Jesus is in the business of redirecting our hearts. It's hard to know what to do with Ahab. He was a vile, selfish, manipulative, evil man. It's hard to know what to do with the gospel in relationship to Judas. He was a frustrated, greedy person who lost his mind and his soul by the betrayal of his friend who happened to be the salvation of the world. but there's something to do for us. And that is to continue to follow Jesus with all of our hearts and our souls and our minds. And to see the way that the generosity of God works in peculiar and beautiful ways through his teaching and through his living and ultimately through his dying. 
It's not easy to follow Jesus in the, pu- in the purity and the power of his kingdom in this culture. There's an empire-esque quality about this culture when it comes to money in the same way, or way that there was an empire-esque quality to the Roman Empire. And yet we enter into this Holy Week together guided by the Holy Spirit because as we watch and we pray and we notice the pathway of Jesus, we are offered a way of salvation that exceeds the negativeness and the narrowness and the selfishness of our most deepest habits and temptations and obsessions. May God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit make us greedy for the way and the kingdom of Jesus. Amen.